Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Endy. Since launching in 2015, Endy has become the leading online sleep brand in Canada. These mattresses are very, very good and very, very reasonably priced because they are manufactured and shipped within Canada. They save all kinds of costs and they pass that on to you. Get $50 off of those already very reasonable costs when you use the promo code CanadaLand at nd.ca slash CanadaLand. Okay, I'm going to try something. I'm going to pretend that I'm like at a bar and I need to explain to an American what happened with Canlit. Like, how did Canlit go in the period of two years from stories about small town life and sex with bears and, and the immigrant experience? How did it go from that to a self-devouring snake pit of loathing and recrimination in the period of 24 months? How did that happen? 
All right, so it started with this guy, Stephen Galloway, who's a novelist that you probably haven't heard of, but we heard of him, and he was running the most famous creative writing department in Canada at UBC. A bunch of students came forward with uh, allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and propriety bullying, and the university canned him. And all of his friends came rushing to his defense, all the big heavy hitters in Canadian literature, uh, of whom you probably heard only of Margaret Atwood, but there's a bunch of others who are considered a really big deal here, and they all signed a letter, which they all thought was something that they were doing, you know, in defense of um, a free speech, and standing up for a writer's right to have a private life and then to be free from kangaroo courts. Um, but which anybody reading it could see was pretty clearly just a way of defending their buddy. And to anybody else who might have similar allegations or concerns about the abuse of power from the people at the top of the literary community, this was a pretty clear fuck you from the most famous and powerful people in the country. That led a counter movement from those younger generation of writers called uh, Can Lit Accountable. And a bunch of people left the first letter. I'm getting too detailed here. The point is the Stephen Galloway thing led to a generational rift of writer against writer. That in turn made Margaret Atwood go on to Twitter and say, hey, how come nobody's mentioning the fact that Stephen Galloway is indigenous? Joseph Boyden just told me that Stephen Galloway is indigenous. And to that, a bunch of indigenous writers said, wait, what the fuck? First of all, are you saying that if he's indigenous, that it's okay that he allegedly sexually assaulted anybody? And second of all, Joseph Boyden told you that? And that led to a bunch of people who had been, you know, keeping politely quiet about some rumors about Joseph Boyden. That led to them actually openly and publicly questioning Joseph Boyden's claims to ingenuity. And that led to full-scale, detailed, and conclusive investigations from Robert Jago and APTN that Joseph Boyden had been misrepresenting his past on inclusion as a First Nations man uh, for his entire career. Okay, so that in turn led to this writer and editor, Hal Nitzvietsky, to writing this editorial about how cultural appropriation is actually great, and that led to uh, him getting fired. And then out of outrage about that, a bunch of the top newspaper editors and the guy who uh, edited the top uh, cultural and arts magazine in the country to joking around that they're going to set up a prize to give to the person who's best at cultural appropriation, which again was just like, fuck you to anybody who thought that cultural appropriation was a real thing, and especially a fuck you to any young indigenous writer who might need to come to any of these editors uh, to write about these issues that they care about. It was a message of mockery and scorn and derision. And that led to uh, CBC executive losing his job and Hal Nedzviedzki losing his job and John K. pretending to lose his job because he was going to get fired anyhow. But he quit amidst all of this and a lot of people thought it was about the appropriation prize. Meanwhile, uh, Margaret Atwood was still feeling like her feelings were hurt about this whole thing. So she went to the Globe and Mail to ask uh, all the readers of the Globe and Mail, they're saying that I'm a bad feminist. People, am I a bad feminist? And they all said, no, Margaret, not you. And then other people said, wait a second, nobody actually called you a bad feminist. And then Roxanne Gay said, hey, woman, stop stealing my shit. And then what else? Concordia University finally took seriously something that had been rumored about and whispered about for years. Uh, they finally took notice. Okay, they finally took notice about it when a guy wrote about it. In fact, Emma Healy had written about it years earlier. But okay, they finally took notice of it when Michael Spry wrote about it. And then some allegations actually came forward. And then John Paul Fiorentino and Dave McGimsey uh, were told not to come in and teach their classes anymore, pending the outcome of a third-party investigation. Full disclosure, Dave McGimsey is a person who I've never met, but who I did license a number of images from for inclusion in our book, The Canada Land Guide to Canada. So to recap, he said, as his American friend glazed over, having lost the plot, five minutes ago, the Galloway affair begat the Atwood affair, the Concordia affair, and the Joseph Boyden affair, which in turn begat the Appropriation Prize affair, which in turn begat version three John Kay. Do I have this all straight? Am I missing anything? Have you read any good books lately? Where are you going? No, sit down. I'm not finished yet. I, I, I am as lost as you are in the events of the last two years in the insular world of Canlit. I mean, uh, whenever I am trying to 
put the threads together of where the plot is at right now, uh, there's a bigger question which emerges, which is like, what does this have to do with books? What does this have to do with literature? What is the meaning of this? Why should the rest of us care? Well, my guest today cares. She agrees that Canlit is a dumpster fire, and yet she cares. She cares enough about it to release a book about it. Hannah McGregor is an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University's publishing department, and she is the co-editor of the upcoming book, Refuse, Canlit in Ruins. Refuse. Refuse? Refuse? I don't know. I'll ask her. Hannah McGregor believes that Canlit is broken. She also believes that it is worth saving. She joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Craig McNaughton, Allison Bell, Andy Chan, Jeannie Tran, Ryan Regier, Sarah Trelevin, Yazan Kawar, and Dylan Taylor. My name's Dylan, and I'm a digital media producer in Toronto. I think it's vitally important to be civically active and properly informed, and Canada Land and its affiliates are a valuable resource when trying to achieve those goals. And this episode is brought to you by Endy, the Canadian-made online mattress company. By now, perhaps you are familiar with the concept of a mattress that you can buy on the internet. This is a way of saving a lot of money and getting a really good mattress. Endy is a way of doing even better than that because Endy is made here in Canada. It is manufactured here with Canadian materials. It is shipped within Canada. The exchange rates right now are crushing. You can avoid all of that when you buy an Endy. You will get the bestest, cheapest mattress you can find. And if you don't like it, you have 100 nights to sleep on it and say, you know what, I'm not into this. And they will pick it up. You'll get all of your money back. They will give the mattress away to a charity. This is Canada's best-selling bed in a box. It is the highest rate of customer satisfaction, the lowest rate of returns. And you'll get $50 off when you go to nd.ca slash CanadaLand and use the promo code CanadaLand. That is nd.ca slash CanadaLand, promo code CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Quick question for freelancers out there, small business owners. If you could get back 192 hours a year of your time, would you do that? Dumb question, rhetorical question, not a real question. Of course you would do that. FreshBooks track this stuff. They actually do the data thing where they actually look at the numbers of the thing to find out how much time they actually save people. They save you time in how long it takes to run your business, send your invoices, track your time, send estimates, do your taxes. They also track how much time you save in chasing after people to get them to pay you. You get paid quicker when you use FreshBooks. It's just math, people. You can't argue with this. They have rebuilt their platform from the ground up. They have taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. And when tax time does roll around, you will have tidy summaries of your expense reports, invoice details, sales tax summaries, quite a bit more actually. 30-day free trial if you haven't tried FreshBooks and want to. Unrestricted for listeners of this show. To claim it, go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand and enter CanadaLand in the How Did You Hear About Us section. So, Canlit. Um, <laughs> mm. in, in my, uh, in my preparation for, uh, our conversation today, I have amassed a list of adjectives used to describe Canlet by people who I think identify as part of it. Here's uh, some of that list. Refuse, ruins, dumpster fire, raging dumpster fire. I could go on. I'm just trying to get my head around. How's Canlet doing? <laughs> it's not great. It's uh, the news. The news I'm afraid is quite bad. Um, the rhetoric surrounding how Canlet is doing has been, oh, this is going to be a bad pun. Inflammatory. Sorry. But yeah, the metaphor of everything is on fire has been a pretty common one over the past two and a half years. Uh, I think largely because of the sheer unbelievable escalation of public terrible events in a way that there have always been public terrible events in Canlit, but usually they happened further apart. So we had time to forget about one before the next one happened. And we don't really have the option right now of forgetting um, and then going back to our lovely imagination of Canlit as um, left-leaning and consensus-based. There's just been too much bad stuff too close together. Is it merely a reflection of how quickly all of these, uh, you know, catastrophes, large and small, happened. And I, and I think, you know, we're talking here about the UBC accountable Stephen Galloway case and everything that kind of followed from that, be it the Joseph Boyden issue and then uh, accusations mm-hmm. from, you know, Coach House to Concordia, sexual mm-hmm. misconduct in various departments, and then, you know... And the appropriation Mar- prize. Appropriation and- prize, Margaret Atwood... Bad feminist, am I one? Well, okay, so it, like this seems to stem from the Galloway thing at UBC. Prior to that, is it just that it was more spaced out, or like I'm not a part of that world, but I, I'm kind of adjacent or kind of tangentially aware of it? It felt to me like there was more of a structure where uh, not just left leaning and progressive, but like a public good, genteel. 
uh, you know, mm. this ki- this kind of like echelon of Canadian voices that represented civil society at its highest order. And if there were rumors or fights or, you know, like there's always literary squabbles, but that happened at a, at a volume and at a frequency that was well beneath uh, perception of the people who might pick up a, uh, a Margaret Atwood book or a Joseph Boyden book at the airport or whatever. Like it, it feels like that it's not only that there were more events, but the clamor of that, like it's almost like, like people seized equal time and, and e- equal uh, space as those luminaries. Is, is that an accurate way of looking mm-hmm. at what's gone down? I think that we are hearing about more of the events and that we're hearing about more of the events for the same reason we hear about more of everything, which is that people who don't have access to a mainstream media platform have places for their voices to be heard now. And we just that's that's trickling through in Canlit the same way as it is in absolutely any other industry that's been historically structured by the hierarchies of who gets to speak and who doesn't. So if the only people we ever hear from in Canlit are the people who have um, a platform and the kind of celebrity or authority to let them talk on a a radio show or or get an op-ed published in the Globe and Mail, then yeah, the the perspective on Canlit that we're going to hear is one where people are mostly civil and polite and mostly everything's fine. Because once you've made it into that world, why would you stand there and say, oh, this is off. Sorry, this is structurally racist. Sorry, everyone. I know that benefited me, but it's pretty bad. Um, and now the people who have been structurally excluded, who who have been driven out for all kinds of ways, who are not held up as the voice piece for our national literature, have places to speak. And the things that they have to say are surprising for those of us who have not dealt with structural racism, with ableism, with trans misogyny as part of our careers. But for a lot of other people, not surprising at all. I'm a, a literary historian by trade. So my tendency is to sort of look back and point to precedents that we have for what's happening right now. So we can look to the 1994 Writing Through Race Conference right here in Vancouver when a number of writers got together to organize a conference that would address issues of structural racism in Canlit. And when they tried to have some panels where uh, only Indigenous and racialized authors could participate, uh, they had some of their public funding revoked via allegations that that was racist against white people. So Canlit has a proud history of this kind of bullshit. It's just, it has been harder to hear. Can we like step back and try to arrive at some kind of definition as to what we're talking about when we say canlit? I mean, I think that to a lot of people who just like, I don't know, got assigned The Handmaid's Tale or like Duddy Kravitz in high school, they would point to a few different authors and that's what like it's Canadian literature and Canadian literature can best be there's a few books that are more famous than other books and that's what canlit is. Uh, but that's not the establishment, the institution, the system that we're that we're referring to here. Is there a way to define what Canlit is that is a bit more contemporary and like accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, the most useful definition of Canlit is the institution that is made up of various cultural policies, arm's length organizations, of uh, government funding systems, publishers. Um, you know, creative writing programs uh, that all emerged out of a, a very particular moment in Canadian political history, which is 
Cold War panic about uh, the cultural power of the U.S. So people may be familiar with the Massey Commission, which the Canadian government essentially created, you know, Vincent Massey was our first Canadian-born governor general. It was this moment of emergent cultural nationalism in Canada. We created this commission to investigate the state of Canadian culture. And what the final report said is that our lack of a distinct national culture was a security threat to Canada on par with the absence of a military. Um, I think there was some really genuine worry about cultural annexation by the U.S. in the wake of World War II. And so starting in the late 1950s, a ton of new institutions came into existence that were dedicated to um, creating and maintaining Canadian culture and funding it as a form of national good. And so that's when we get, you know, the Canada Council. It's when we get new publishing series like the New Canadian Library published by McClelland and Stewart. It's where we start to get Canadian literature departments at our universities. It's where we get the first academic journal called Canadian Literature. And all these things emerge in very, very short order um, in order to allow a unique national literature to exist and thrive in the context of a country where as an independent industry, it absolutely could not exist. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I, I was not aware of the analogy to this being as important as a military in, mm-hmm. in, in, the, in, the, in the origins of this. I mean, looking at this from the perspective of, say, I don't know, a young kid who likes to write and whose teacher encourages them to read a lot and to pursue creative writing. And then you get, you know, that's a common dream. Oh, maybe I'll, I'll be a, the next great novelist. I don't think that people get into that with an intention of I will be buttressing Canadian identity <laughs> and se- securing our borders um, with the same importance that the military. I think you're just you're, you're trying to be an artist and you're trying to tell stories and have a voice, but you have no idea that it, unless you move, you are on a trajectory where this this what's become arguably a rat's nest of internal warfare <laughs> awaits mm-hmm. you in this like strange government mandated collection of of. <laughs> subsidies and po- like that's yeah. that's where this meets like because like a lot of people say like, well this is your little world and you, you know it, it might not be great but like the size of the industry and and the cultural impact these are relatively minor but but this is what we've got when it comes to literature and and anyone who wants to engage with it get published or or, or be a part of it yeah yeah, it, it is. And while while individual writers may not themselves feel particularly passionate about the nation, which I think most artists are probably not like super stoked about nationalism. Uh, the fact is that the, the apparatuses that make it possible for you to be a writer in Canada are all about nationalism. I wonder if that's not a central contradiction when you've got artists who are challenging ideas of nationalism and challenging ideas of Canada, but yeah. are trying to do so within a structure that was created to basically be, I don't know, like, is there anything to call it, but like propagandistic or like like a nationalistic project? So like best case scenario, what we have are arm's length cultural organizations that um, while they might have had originally a propagandistic function today... Uh, are you know if the artists themselves sit on the juries and get to decide, then you know they're not sort of 
in the pocket of the government. And that's the ideal, right? That we want Canada Council decisions about granting to be made by writers and publishers, not by bureaucrats. Because the second we have bureaucrats in a position where they get to decide how much money a publisher does and does not get, all of a sudden, you know, a publisher or a writer has to be really wary about what they do and do not write. And that way lies a very sort of scary propaganda slippery slope kind of situation. Um, And I will say that I think Canada Council is getting a little less arm's reach every year. I think it's it's getting slightly more, you know, more and more power in the hands of the government to decide exactly how much money you get and whether or not you're doing something that the government feels good about. But you know what? Uh, I I think you kind of uh, set me straight there. Like the theoretical fear that, you know, you know, this government supported artistic structure, you know, will be abused for, you know, propaganda and it'll have to, you know, artists will be censored and they'll have to support the government of the day. No, no, no. As, as a protection against that, let's have artists making the decision. It'll be mm-hmm. arm's length. But the, the assumption then is that artists will make decisions based on like artistic merit and not based on who their friends are. And we can't assume that. That's it. Or, you know, who their friends are or what their literary movement is or what their moment is. And literature, I guess, ideally is a series of revolutions of people flipping over the way that the the last generation did it. So there's going to be some protectionism and cronyism. And, you know, you're supposed to be like, that's not art. If like There's supposed to be revolution after revolution, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And those aesthetics and politics have always been profoundly intertwined with each other. And so we find ourselves debating and getting very angry with one another about the politics of of aesthetics mm-hmm. and who gets to be considered canonical and who gets the money. And, and, and as a result, it just seems like the larger conversation is just so much more concerned with the politics of Canlet than the content of it. I mean, imagine if we actually talked about a Canadian book with the same passion and rigor and interest and anger that, that uh, the politics of Canlet gets discussed. Yeah, I was going to say, it's just killing me watching all of these um, sort of pundits say, you know, like the quality of literature is being destroyed because of all of these damn lefties with their their identity politics. And I'm like, but what's the last book you read? Like, honestly, just tell like how much incredible queer Canadian literature have you been reading? Because I've been reading it and it's really good is the thing. Not a lot. And I, and I, I include myself in that. It, it feels like discussion of the books itself is the last thing on the agenda but yeah this, okay but so this this is you know Marsha Lederman's arts reporter and writer for um, the Globe and Mail she put it this way she said canlit used to feel like something that was taught in high school not something that felt like high school hmm. and there's I think a bit of a dismissive and you know arguably patronizing attitude towards all of these conflicts which I, I I'm sure that I have uh, said things of the similar tenor because of just like how micro the the world is you know mm-hmm. and I, I, maybe that's like the, the central thing that you and I are trying to determine here like what is this thing and is it worth saving like is this canlit meltdown that we're experiencing right now, a sad, vicious little spectacle over, you know, these little tiny publishing deals, a handful of dwindling academic jobs, a few thousand bucks here and there of grant money or prize money, you know, a, a good or a bad review from your friend or your enemy. Uh, like, nobody reads the reviews outside of the world. Of, you know, can't let few people read the books outside. Like, it, is this about, like, petty ego conflicts of a tiny community of people who get more attention for their fights than they do for their stories? 
Or, or is this candlelit dumpster fire representative of the wider conflict in the culture itself? Like, like to the extent that the candlelit wars are about big things, like actually very important things, like sexual assault and abuse of power and baby boomers hoarding power and exploiting young people and old white feminists versus young intersectional feminists and reconciliation as a marketing brand versus reconciliation as, as like an actual political and social reckoning. You know, candlelit wars are about race itself. Like those are not small concerns. Those are yeah. the big concerns of our moment. So like are the candlelit wars actually the front lines of the culture war? Yeah, there were, I love the phrase candlelit wars. I'm really into it. I'm going to get a t-shirt made. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm inclined to say a little bit of both. Um, there's a, a pettiness in some of what we've seen out of people like Margaret Atwood that smacks to me of a big fish in a very small pond, um, of somebody who has managed to dominate what is ultimately a really tiny cultural field. Like, we're a small country we we have a small arts budget compared to other countries. Um, we have a small publishing scene. We have a small literary scene. That that weird puff piece about Galloway that referred to him as being at the glittering heart of Canlit, and it was like, come on now, <laughs> like our heart, the heart of Canlit does not glitter. I'm sorry. And so there there is there is a, a smallness and a pettiness about it that that really smacks of people who have found a small amount of power and desperately want to hold on to it. But I think what's ultimately at stake for a lot of people are those larger questions um, that we're all playing out within whatever industries we work in, with whatever our world is, whatever our sphere is, we are grappling with these larger questions of race and sexual assault and rape culture and power and intergenerational conflict. These are, you know, we're living through a, a massive moment of cultural upheaval that we can see both tremendous strides towards equity accompanied by a simultaneous sort of clamping down that we're seeing in politics all over the world. People are alarmed at change. That's always been the case. Culture wars always look kind of like this. And I'm inclined to say that the real reason why the Canlet culture wars happen to get more publicity and more attention than the simultaneous other culture wars that are happening in a lot of other industries is that there's a couple of big celebrities who decided to make it a big media spectacle decided, you know, Margaret Atwood mm -hmm. and Joseph Boyden said, um, we want to use our power and our voice and our seemingly limitless access to media platforms in this country to project our perspective on what's happening. And it's turned what in some ways is, you know, a conversation within a comparatively small community into a big national thing. Thing. That's my very articulate way <laughs> of referring to it. It's a thing. It's a thing. No, I, I and I get that thing that you're describing. It's interesting that when you talk about pettiness, you're ascribing that to the, the big fish. And, I, you know, I, look, I felt the same way. Like, to be challenged, I guess, from, from beneath, from much less influential and moneyed uh, and mm -hmm. published writers and voices, and to fight back against them in the pages of the Globe and Mail felt like a bully move to me mm -hmm. on the part of 
of Margaret Atwood. It's like, I'm not actually going to respond to your criticisms. I'm going to go over your head to a much wider audience that I have access to and ask them, oh, so am I a bad feminist now? Uh, soliciting, no, no, Margaret, not you. Of course You? Not. You wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Of course, you know, I, I, I felt like that you was- You invented feminism. <laughs> it, it, it felt small in that way. And then, I don't know. I mean, I, like everything about Boyden's response- you know, he 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 was very angry and dismissive that this was all just like a takedown attempts, for, like everything, like, and it, like allowing himself to kind of have all of these troops rally around him, and uh, the way that that message was controlled. When I really felt like the door was open for him by so many people to have another chapter, no pun intended, like hmm. to, to like take responsibility and say, I haven't considered these things as thoroughly as I have now. And I, I have misrepresented things, obviously. Like I, I did feel like there was <laughs> there was a smallness to that. It, it was open to him. It was available to him mm-hmm. to rise to that occasion. So I, I, I'm not going to play devil's advocate here when I'm, I guess, pretty clearly sympathetic to your side when you're when you're attributing the pettiness to that side of things. Most people commenting on this, and especially mm-hmm. the people commenting on this in the biggest venues feel that it's the other side that is very, very petty. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I didn't want to stage a debate, but I will represent their point of view here for, for the purpose of our conversation here. Mm-hmm. Here's a quote I'll read to you. It is bad enough that this current batch of underemployed canlit malcontents spend their lives trying to libel the successful authors they envy Now they want to indoctrinate another batch through the colleges. The real crime of people such as Abdu and Boyden and so forth is that they're successful. It's tall poppy syndrome with a thin patina of identity politics. Hannah, I'm loathe. I know know exactly who that's by. I hate to ask, but is John K. right? Is any part of that right? Is this just like haters going to hate? You know, it's really funny to me. It's really interesting to see that particular argument circulating, you know, through Kay's work and through a lot of other people on social media saying, well, how dare you criticize these people? They're famous and successful. I have to say, as an academic, the premise that you're not allowed to critique Margaret Atwood because she's too famous is hilarious and absurd because the more famous an author is, the more time people spend thinking closely and carefully about their work as well as their public persona. I think what we're seeing is a collapsing of the kind of platform you have access to or are choosing to use with the value of your voice. And so if you can speak in an op-ed in the Globe and Mail, then your voice matters. And if the platform you have access to is Twitter, then you are part of the teeming faceless mob. And that is a really strategic stance to take, to say that by definition, people with access to platforms have better things to say. And by definition, people without access don't have anything good to say and must just be jealous is a really great way of making sure that you are devaluing the voice of anybody who isn't already powerful. And we can see that that would be a really effective way to try to sort of maintain power in the hands of those who already have it. And also, can I just point out that is like literally a scene out of Mean Girls. Like, oh my God, you're just jealous of me. We're all just super jealous of Margaret Atwood. (laughs) I think that that is not a very generous interpretation of John Kay's position, uh, albeit perhaps accurate. I, I mean, you're right. It is the position of people who feel 
that the system should be conserved. It's a conservative position. And it's not simply that we should respect these people because they're successful, but it is people who I think have something invested in the system, but believe that, yes, if you were a better writer, you too would have a bigger platform. And that there is such a thing as greatness, and there is such a thing as genius, Mm -hmm. and that these, uh, how did he put it, these candlelit malcontents, they want to burn the whole house down, but uh, what are they going to replace it with? And they haven't proven themselves in the battlefield of quality. You could take the cynical position that they're just trying to entrench their power and protect their positions, and I think that there's a lot of that going on, but I'll give them a benefit of the doubt that part of their fear is that we're just going to destroy literature itself and the idea of greatness in literature and that we're we're throwing the the canon away because it's white and male, and what are we replacing it with? Uh, They they do actually fear that. At my most... most Oh, generous isn't even the word that I want to use. Let's say at my most teacherly, because when I am in a classroom, my job is to really try to understand where people are coming from. It is harder to deal with an enormous amount of uncategorized and unhierarchalized information than it is to deal with a small amount of pre-filtered information, right? Like if somebody just says, here's all of the books ever and they're all equally good and every single one matters equally and there's 7 million of them enjoy, that's literature, versus here's 10 books and just read these. Um, The latter is a lot easier to deal with. So I get, I get where that comes from. I think we are all in our own ways trying to come up with conceptual ways to deal with overabundance. The thing is that if we want to be critical, self-reflective, smart people, then we need to think about why we make the decisions that we make about whose voice we're going to listen to and whose voice we aren't and what books we're going to decide matter and what books we're going to throw out. Are you then suggesting chaos or (laughs) are you suggesting should we burn it all down and have every book be considered of equal merit, God help us? Or are you suggesting that we build a new hierarchy based on different things? I think we will almost inevitably sort of constantly destroy and produce new hierarchies and new canons. I think that's just sort of how we work culturally. And it's inevitable that the small canon of Canadian literary celebrities who emerged in the 70s and 80s would have another generation of people come along and say, yeah, actually, we're not interested in your work anymore. We're interested in work that does things that explicitly challenge yours. What we're seeing right now is, I think, an inevitable kind of aesthetic movement getting tangled up in questions of institutional power and celebrity and like whether or not universities should be allowed to deal with issues of sexual assault, like things, things have gotten tangled. And I think we would all do well to maybe parse them a bit better. So let's say that this is just history repeating and things need to be destroyed for things to be rebuilt. And we're in this, this moment, a little bit different, technologically fueled, but not totally mysterious to us of, of the war in in between (laughs) Hasn't one side totally won? I mean, I look at this right now, and Galloway's gone from UBC, Mm -hmm. and Joseph Boyden's expected follow-up novel, uh, everyone was wondering, how's that novel going to do, given the the, the controversy, very quietly uh, has not been released. Mm -hmm. 
and the professors at Concordia who were accused of abuse, they, they, they seem to be on ice or gone. I think that if the question is, uh, oh, certainly professors should be allowed, it's just their, it's their birthright. They're professors. They should be able to date their students. The universities are very uh, decisively coming down on like, no, that's not good. Yeah. You don't want that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that there's a lot of interest in who the next voice is going to be. Is, isn't there – like, it, hasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't, the, the, hasn't the revolution succeeded? Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is where the metaphor of the war uh, stops being helpful because it suggests that in a situation like this, one side wins. And what ends up getting lost, you know, when we look at the media coverage of, of Galloway, which has focused so intensely on the consequences for him, you know, emotional and professional and financial, um, what we don't see is the really devastating consequences for a lot of the people who have been doing this work, a lot of the complainants, including the main complainant, um, a lot of the people who have been doing the activist work of having these conversations and like the intensity of um, the intense emotional toll that comes with generation after generation of young women who have to subject themselves to really horrific public attacks in order to say yet again, a man in a position of power abused me. And I'm, th- I'm thinking in particular right now of, of Concordia and, you know, the fact that I really don't think any of the people who have come forward about the culture of assault and abuse at Concordia are feeling like they have won anything right now. It's unbelievably difficult emotional work uh, to name these systems of abuse and to become, you know, the public representative of naming that. I mean, we saw what happened in the Gomeshi trial. We we know how this can really destroy people. Um so yeah, uh, winning is not how I would describe it. Yeah, you make some really good points there. I mean, I was thinking the same thing, and and to to this John K question of like, oh, these uh, underemployed malcontents, like what they really want is whatever petty thrills you get by taking somebody down or getting famous by being the accuser, like bullshit. They would much rather be famous for their first book. It's not joyous work by any means. And I would say if there is something like a version of winning to look to, um, for me, it is what are the books that we're going to get in 5, 10, 15, 20 years that would be impossible in the version of the industry that currently exists because the people who are going to write them absolutely could not survive in the creative writing programs as we've created them or because the the publishers that currently exist can't see the value in them. Like what incredible new art and new voices is going to become possible if we start building space for those voices and for for the people who have stories to tell that we literally can't imagine right now because everything about how we structured this industry makes you know certain people just not eligible um that that's kind of a version of winning for me you know uh our 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 managing editor kevin sexton here he's from uh concordia's literature department Mm -hmm. for his undergrad and we were talking about this he put it to me uh to paraphrase him that you know to whatever extent you can define a people by their literature, this is a fight over who gets to define this country. Mm-hmm. So that's no small that's, that's no small thing. Yeah, yeah. I think the degree to which you really care about the stakes of the, this argument or this you know culture war, so to speak, may come down to how much you care about 
literature. And I would say that the people who have a lot of skin in this game are the people who care really deeply about it, who really believe that the stories that we tell and the stories that we make space for are going to be a really fundamental part of of redefining what Canada could be. And if we would like it to be a country that grapples in really serious ways with its violent history and that imagines new possibilities for the future, we need stories that are going to help us do that. Do you have one to recommend? (laughs) Summertime. I got to buy something to read. Yeah. So I'm going to recommend, I went to a really incredible reading um, recently in Vancouver. I saw Amber Dawn um, read from Sodom Road Exit. I saw Joshua Whitehead read from Johnny Appleseed. And I saw Casey Plett read from Little Fish. I have now had the pleasure of reading all three of those books. And they're all really, really incredible. So you're editing a book that I think alternately can be pronounced refuse or refuse uh-huh. is there a preferred <laughs> i think we're mostly saying refuse hannah thank you thank you that was your canada land show i do hope you enjoyed it you can email me about it and i will read the things that you send me when you send them to jesse at canadalandshow.com we are on Twitter at Canada Land. We have a webpage. We put all of our podcasts there. You can listen to them for free. We also report news stories, and that's where they appear, canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. This episode of Canada Land was produced by Laura Howells. Editorial assistance by Olamide Olanian. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do, please support us on Patreon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.